Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. So this week, um, covering not necessarily uh, a character, uh, but a place, um, it's a little kind of kind of in the same ballpark um, as the topic. And um, this, uh, like some of the other topics, isn't something I would necessarily describe as necessarily forgotten. Everybody is familiar with it, uh, even people uh, not members of the church. I would be familiar with it, but I would say that the way a lot of people live their lives, um, a lot of people, um, you know, the way they go about their their daily lives um, would say otherwise that they really believe or really remember that this uh, place is real. And um, and so this week I'm going to be talking on uh, heaven. And um, it's part of... Um, this lesson is part of, I think I mentioned it a couple weeks ago, uh, part of a, a series that I did back when I, um, in my hometown of Phoenix City, uh, when I went to church there, uh, part of a series I did um, there for that church. and um, But it's part of a series, and so, uh, but that's the topic for today, so we're going to go ahead and get started. So, back in... January of 2000, um, the leaders of kind of the city of, of Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, had invited um, the famous preacher uh, Billy Graham. I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with him. Uh, but they invited him to be honored at, at this luncheon. And he eventually accepted the invitation. And when he got there, he, he made a sh- uh, kind of a short speech. Um, and it was a short story. Uh, about Albert Einstein, and I'm sure many of you all are familiar with him. And he gave this uh, or told this story about Albert Einstein because just recently, uh, Albert Einstein um, back then had been named uh, Time Magazine's Person of the Century, Albert Einstein. And so he tells this story about how Einstein had boarded a train, and back then you'd have this ticket checker who'd go around to make sure somebody didn't try to to slip on the train, they didn't have their ticket, um, and they would come around, and this ticket checker would, would come around, and he would check the tickets, and he eventually got to Albert Einstein. And I'm sure, as many of you know, he has that sort of iconic sort of look, so he's probably very famous and easily recognizable during the time. And so he eventually gets to, to Einstein, and, and Einstein proceeded to search for his ticket. He couldn't seem to find it, and uh, the ticket checker proceeds to tell him that everything is fine, uh, you know, we all know who you are and that we're sure you bought a ticket. You know, Albert Einstein probably had the funds to afford a train ticket. And so the ticket checker began to continue to make his rounds around the train and he got back to the, to the, the cart where uh, Einstein was at and he gets there and Albert Einstein is now on his hands and his knees and he's, he's looking around and he's still searching for his ticket and he, and the ticket checker, he comes back down to Albert Einstein. He says, once again, Mr. Einstein, we, all know who you are. We're sure you bought a ticket. Don't worry about it. 
Well, Einstein proceeds to stand up and he looks the man in the eye and he says, young man, I too know who I am. What I don't know is where I'm going. And there are a lot of great questions in our lives. And there are three that typically tend to stand out and ones that we ask a lot, but we also avoid asking a lot. And those are, where did I come from? Why am I here? And where am I going? And if you take maybe the the secularist or the naturalist view that all there is is nothing more than what is around us and that we're nothing more than a sophisticated animal that originated out of some primordial soup that just evolved. And if you accept that conclusion, then that can lead to some sort of despairing conclusions. You see, that is, if our origin possesses no intrinsic value or purpose, and all that you are is what you leave behind, and when you die, you're just simply extinct. And so we're left with those great questions. Where did I come from? Why am I here? And where am I going? And you might look at various places for answers. You might consult your friends, your family, your coworkers, those people whose opinion you value. Uh, you might even um, try to, to, to tackle those answers by, by looking into popular culture um, you know, or, or, or from people that you might idolize. And so Hollywood or, or popular culture has tried to address this address these questions um, in some way or another. And one of those I just kind of want to bring out is you had this kind of famous sitcom uh, back in the 80s and 90s uh, called Murphy Brown. Uh, and it's about this wisecracking journalist, uh, Candace Bergen. And there was this controversy that arose, as, as quite often did uh, in the show. And, and one was that Murphy had a baby as a single mother, which is sort of a controversy kind of at that time. Um, however, one of the things that Murphy began to ponder was when that she had her child, what would happen to her after she died and what would happen for her child? And would she be prepared to talk to her child about that? And so she went and she consulted her father and he replied, well, does the light stay on in the fridge when you unplug it? And she didn't like that answer and so she continued to go around and asked her co-workers and she had this sort of philandering character that said, well, I guess it depends on just which woman I'm dating at the time. Uh, if she's Hindu or Buddhist, that's how I think what happens when we die. And then she went to another who was Jewish, and he says, well, I don't really like to think about that. I like to think on the here and the now. And dissatisfied with these answers, she goes home, and she has this sort of philosophic house painter. And she always seemed to sort him, and he was always there to sort of dish out advice. And she goes out, goes to him, and he gives this advice to her. He says, well, I do believe in immortality in that we live on and what we create, like my art. So maybe you have something like that to fall back on. And Murphy seems to sort of accept this answer, and the episode ends, and it's all tied up with a bow. And this is sort of Hollywood's answer to us when we think about the afterlife or eternity, that we live on and what we leave behind. And there's a part of me that just wants to say, wait a minute, is that the best you can give me? That the afterlife is just what I leave behind. That's not enough. Well, to my knowledge, anthropologists have yet to find really a single culture that did not believe in an afterlife. Whether that is Nirvana, Valhalla, or heaven. Or some sort of other afterlife. There is something in the human spirit that cries out that I'm not just a candle in the wind 
to be snuffed out. And this is because Scripture says in Ecclesiastes 3.11, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. He has placed eternity in the human heart. And so you might begin to wonder, where does a Christian begin when we ponder or think about the afterlife of why we're here, where do we come from, and where we're going? Where would a Christian turn to? And, and I said this before a couple of weeks ago, when you ever have a topic like, uh, like this, or most topics, excuse me, that, that I would point you to the gospel, or the words in red, and we, we should ask the question, what did Jesus Christ say? And this is because if I trust His word and His life, then Jesus is the only person I really know, or, or who can, I can read about this, been to the other side, and He's came back, and he's told us. And even really with this topic, even Jesus had his doubters, people that questioned him. Jesus had to deal with the secularists or the naturalists in his time. You see, you had the Sadducees who didn't believe in, in, the, resur- in the resurrection in uh, Luke 20. Luke chapter 20, uh, starting in verse 27. It says there that some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but no children, that man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second, and then the third, and married her. And in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? And Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all To him, all are alive. Some of the teachers of the law responded, Well said, teacher. No one dared to ask him any more questions. And so this section of verses here hints at the question of where we're going. You see, Christ wants us to live our lives looking through the lenses of what is to come. The whole world is caught up in escapism that we're trying to escape this world but we should in fact embrace us for what happens to us in this world because we know of the life that follows. So you may recall when Christ, when he, when he sent out the 72 and they returned to him and you have this interaction that, that ensued between Christ and, and the 72 uh, when they returned with joy and they said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And he replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You see, Jesus didn't preach to us when he talks about our lives and what is to come. He didn't preach to us that our lives now are a gospel that is life enhancement on earth, which has largely been brought about by our sort of our American culture of decadence and excess. But we all sort of buy into it. Uh, that is that you can come to church. And we'll bandage you up and we'll meet all of your needs in order to make you happy as a consumer of our product. And so how shallow truly that is. 
So in one sense, Jesus did not guarantee this life and how it will turn out for you. But certainly, he guaranteed the next one. So in a way, our life right now and our afterlife depends on the actions we take now and how we respond to God's call. So there's a total of of eight points I kind of want to get through this. Uh, The first four are just uh, generally uh, about the afterlife, and the first four is how heaven um, can impact your life right now or the practicalness of heaven. And so those those four things, those four general things uh, about the afterlife are, are this. The first one is that everyone will be raised and judged. And I've talked about some of this before, but but um, going into that first point, everyone will be raised and judged. Death ends no one's existence. Every single human will be raised and brought before God to be judged. Uh, and that brings forth a new age and there will be no excused absences. John chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 24, says the following. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. And you can see here from that scripture there toward the end of what we read that judgment begins at the very presence of Christ. Indeed, a time is coming where where Jesus will come and everyone will rise up to be judged and those who have done good will go to eternal life and those who have done evil will go on to judgment. Everyone will face this from the one individual who knows you through and through and no one will be able to engage in any sort of identity theft because he really knows us for who we are and no one will ever demand an appeal because we will know that he has been just. And so everyone will be raised and judged. The second point about the afterlife is this. Anyone who trusts in Jesus will be welcome into heaven. And Jesus was, was consistent with this message that our afterlife depends on our relationship with him. You see, being good enough is not good enough to enter into heaven. The question on judgment day is not how much necessarily did I sin, but the question will be, did I trust God's answer to my sin? In John chapter 8, Jesus says, You are from below and I'm from above. You are of this world and I'm not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am He. You will indeed die in your sin. You see, God loves the entire world. He loves His creation. He loves His children. But only those who intentionally cling to grace go to heaven. Only those who believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and confess that, and are baptized, go to heaven. And so, do you trust Jesus? Do you trust the answer to your sin? And while that may seem like an easy question, oftentimes we forget where our allegiances and loyalties actually lay due to our actions. And so the third point about this is that heaven is real. It is a real place. Going back to John uh, chapter 14, starting verse 1, about heaven uh, being real. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms, and if that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. You see, God has purposely given us insights into heaven because he wants us to desire to be there. Christ tells us that he is preparing a place for us. He tells his disciples that he has prepared a place for us. And so God does give us those insights, you know, through the inspired writings throughout, you know, the Bible uh, of descriptions of heaven. And he gives us these glimpses into heaven because he wants us to desire to be there. And heaven is a place of many rooms like we just read. So heaven is a place of community. It's a place of community. And, and, but we can look at it and say, how often have we said at work or, or, or I've heard other people say that if I can just get away from people, then I will be okay. If I can just sort of ostracize myself and live my life, that I will be okay. If we could take some sort of monk monastery approach where we live off in the far reaches of some mountain, if I could just live there and be away from everybody else, I will be okay. But heaven is a place of community. Heaven is not a place to go to escape relationships, but to embellish them. Heaven is a real tangible place, and you and I are going to be raised in physically transformed bodies, and not to a place filled with uh, clouds and castles in the sky where I fly around on wings and I'm some spiritual see-through body, uh, but to a real city. God is coming for me and preparing a place for me and for you. And so heaven is unique to you. You see, heaven is going to be a place of unlimited capacity and opportunity to experience God face to face. Like I said, it's that place of community. It's a place of relationships. It's a real place. And it's going to give us the opportunity to experience God finally face to face. It's going to give us that opportunity to spend eternity with Him, with the Son. And I brought this point up before, but I want to bring it up again uh, in this lesson. Um, it's a place of community and relationships for eternity. And you, and you begin to think maybe, well, won't that get boring? You know, it's, it, it might be, I don't know, you know, talking about COVID and things like that where people are having to quarantine and, um, and maybe you and your spouse uh, got COVID at the same time and you had a quarantine together and, you know, you took for granted maybe those eight hours a day you got to go to work and spend a little bit of time apart and, uh, you know, kind of be, you know, be yourself separate from your spouse, but all of a sudden you're forced to be there two weeks with this person and maybe by the tenth day you go, well, this is getting a little bit old. <laughs> I'm getting a little bit tired of this. Or it may be, you know, that your children had it all at the same time and you're, and it's just like, it just begins to be a lot. And so you begin to think about eternity with the same people and with God. Would it get boring? Would it become commonplace? Would I let God become commonplace and boring? I think we can think on Paul's words in, in Acts chapter 17 and verse 28. It says, For in him we live and move and have our being. It is God's very presence that creates the very essence of joy. Psalm chapter 73 says the following, Yet I am with you 
always. You hold me by my right hand, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into your glory. Whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You see, God never gets old, never gets boring. Heaven is a place of community with others, of spending time embellishing relationships. He never becomes old. He never becomes boring because from God comes the very essence of happiness. And, and, and just think upon this. You, you, know, you can think back to your childhood when maybe you got uh, a certain toy or a certain item or something that you wanted. And uh, for a while it was fun and it was great and it was new, whatever that toy may be. But then next year the new model comes out. Next year the, the new toy comes out. And that old toy doesn't do the same things that the new one does. Not as nice, not as good. And we can see it today, really, with all of our electronics, that the new one comes out and, well, you know, that, that phone has Face ID and I'm put, sitting here putting in passwords on my phone. You know, I want the new technology. Um, you know, I want what the new iPhone or the new Galaxy or whatever, uh, whatever phone that you have. I want the new one. And the old one, it just becomes old. Because it becomes outdated. Technology moves on. Joy and happiness do not get old. And from God comes the very essence of those things. From God is where we draw our happiness and our joy. And those will never get old. So the fourth sort of general point about the afterlife is that heaven is not our default destination. Heaven is not our default destination. Yes, hell is real and it's not the invention of prophets and of people in the church that are trying to scare people into doing right. And trust me when I say this too, that I don't want to believe in hell. I don't want to have to believe in it. Would you? You see, if, if I had a choice... You know, maybe I wouldn't believe in it, but Christ is far too clear on His existence to even begin to deny it. And one theologian put it like this. They said, there seems to be this kind of conspiracy to forget or deny the doctrine of hell. And it is no medieval priestcraft and trying to scare people into giving more to the church, but instead it is Christ's delivered judgment on sin. And we cannot repudiate hell without altogether repudiating Christ. You see, the truth is, heaven and hell must stand together. Without hell, Jesus' sacrifice would be diminished. And what did He come to save me from if there is no hell? The cross would be less heroic and less potent. Therefore, it should come as no surprise that Jesus talked about hell more than anyone else because He's the only one so far who's truly seen what God's forsakenness is like, and has lived to come back and tell us. You see, Jesus uses metaphors uh, throughout the gospel like darkness to remind us of the loneliness of hell, that, that we would be separated from the social activity, separated from those relationships that we, we get to enjoy in heaven, and, and separated from the essence of joy and happiness by being separated from God. And we were not made for that. 
You see, hell is a place of eternal loneliness. Hell is simply a place where you spend eternity in remorse and regret over your actions. And there's nothing you can do to make it right. It's an eternity. You know, you may think of that, you know, sort of a relationship or that you may have had with somebody in the past and maybe you did something wrong. Uh, maybe you weren't the bigger person and you hurt that individual. You see, the beauty of it right now is, you know, even while we're not guaranteed tomorrow, you have the opportunity right now to go back and repair that. You have the opportunity to correct your mistake. But with hell, it's lonely and it's dark. And there's nothing you can do to correct what you've done. There is no do-over there. And hell will be agonizingly dull, insignificant, and a side note in history as heaven moves on gloriously into its new age. And so it it shouldn't surprise you that that Christ would say in Matthew chapter 7, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. You see, you don't go to heaven automatically like you're entitled to it. You see, often it's said that for every one person who believes that they might be going to hell, there's 150 who think that they're going to heaven. And they have this sort of universalism way of philosophy where there's no bad consequence at the end of the age. But not everyone gets to go there. Only the ones that choose to go there. Only the ones that choose to go there. God does not send people to hell. He simply honors their choices, the choices that they made. C.S. Lewis put it this way in his book, The Great Divorce. said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those God says to, thy will be done. All that are hell, choose it or else there would be no hell. And C.S. Lewis would go on to say in that book, I willingly believe that the damned are successful rebels to the end and that the doors of hell are locked from the inside. You see, no one in hell will be able to say that God sent me here. God put hell on His Son so we don't have to go there. And no one in heaven will also be able to say, I put myself here. When we first see heaven, we are truly going to be amazed at the beauty, the majesty, the purity, and the holiness of God and His creation. And we will be truly dumbfounded that God has made a way for sinners to get to heaven. And so those are those sort of four general thoughts uh, about heaven. Uh, We're kind of getting close here to the the end of time. And so I'll try to go through this next section a little bit more quickly. So let us talk about these four points of heaven and how is heaven supposed to be a help for us right now? What does it do for us right now? Well, there, there was this also this famous theologian who was going around and he was preaching at, at various churches and he had a, this friend who he brought with him. Uh, he brought this friend with him as he traveled uh, to the various churches around the states. Um, and he and his friend uh, had arrived at this one particular church and, and his friend asked him, well, what are you going to preach on tonight? What's going to be the topic of the sermon? And the preacher responded with heaven. 
And his friend sort of grimaced, and he gave that sort of like the sound. And the preacher said, why do you respond like that? And his friend said, well, I just hope that tonight you might preach on something a little bit more practical. You see, that response, I believe, brings about a truth that many Christians in this world believe that heaven is is a really nice uh, doctrine to be attained one day and sort of this sweet by and by, uh, it will matter at some point. But for right now, we need something more relevant or else our attention will be drawn away from the things that are really important to us and, and present in our current culture. So how can heaven help us right now? Number one, heaven helps us stand out. You see, if your worldview accurately reflects the next world, then your lifestyle will be affected in this world. And you can see this in 1 Peter 2, chapter 11, when he talks about how we're going to live as aliens and strangers to this world. And so what does he mean? Somehow we are to relate to this life as foreigners, exiles, nomads, or temporary residents of this world. Somehow we are to relate to it. But yet... This is not our home. You see, what Peter is trying to point to us is that if we are fixated on heaven, then we will have desires and values that will set us apart. And it sets us apart because of where our hope lies. Because of where our hope lies. For example, if my fix is on heaven, then I will be quite confused about this world's fixation on wealth. If my fix is to be rich in the next life, then I will instinctively be more giving in this life because I realize the way God views this relational currency. The reason God gives us great wealth is is used to show God in our culture. That is, we use our money, and when we get this, we suddenly see that there's a difference between uh, between treasures and, and trinkets, between what is disposable and what is really durable. Not only that, but we will have extraordinarily different views in how we see people because of the death of sacrifice and that we are willing and what we are willing to go for people. We start realizing that investing in people is really the best way to spend life now because people are the most important commodity in the next life. And this is what Paul had in mind when he, when he wrote to the Corinthians uh, that we no longer look at people by how they look by how they perform. Because he goes on to say that there was a time when we all looked at Jesus in in that way and we missed it. However, maybe the most surprising value uh, of all this way is how we will view happiness. How heaven makes us view happiness today. You see, Esau thought that happiness would be realized if he sold his massive inheritance for a hot meal. David thought that his happiness would be enhanced with a sexual encounter with another man's wife. And by the way, it's no different really today than us pulling out our credit cards only to go further and further into debt that we think we can increase our happiness that way. And it's no different than the person that finds their happiness through alcohol or lust or drugs. But if our belief in heaven is really sharp, how we measure Time kind of shifts. And we find to our surprise that we find joy and hope and not in what the world provides as quick fixes. And this is the kind of story that Jesus tells in in Luke 
where you have the, the story of the man who uh, realizes he has such great wealth or such great possessions, and he has these barns, and he has to tear them down because I'm going to build even bigger barns to put all my stuff in. And, and we might relate a little bit more to us today that maybe you have a two-car garage, and you realize, well, now i got three cars, and I'm going to build a four-car garage. And so you have, you have that story there in Luke. But when that man who, who tore down those barns and built bigger barns, when he's faced with the next life to come, God calls him a fool. Which doesn't mean necessarily that he's an idiot. It means that he's missing out on something. On something that God offers. He was called a fool not so much because of his materialism, but because of his temporalism. That is, he knew he was going to die. And he didn't live with a relational currency towards that. You see, heaven helps us to declare loyalty to a larger version of life. Number two, heaven helps us lighten up. See, what I'm getting at here is that heaven helps us sift through and see through all the things in our life that that matter and don't matter. You see, you can imagine that maybe you're some sort of uh, businessman and you spend a lot of time maybe traveling to various countries, uh, various states, and so you've been to several different airports across the nation, across different countries or continents, and in your life has spent a lot of time on these trips. But I bet you if you were that businessman, you probably really couldn't remember what the airports really looked like at some point. What each airport looks like. And do you know why? Because you just don't get that worked up about places that you're going to be at temporarily. You don't stay in the airports. They just happen to be where you're at as you make your way home. And that is what Paul has in mind when he talks to the Corinthians and he says, Our troubles are small, they last only for a short time, but they are earning for us a glory that will last forever, that is greater than all of our troubles. And so we don't spend all of our time looking at what we can see, instead we look at what we can't see. What we can see lasts only for a short time. But what we can't see lasts forever. Now understand that Paul is is not trivializing our lives, but he's comparing our lives. And that's the difference. You know, just think about this. How many things you and I get bent out of shape over and they will never pass the eternity test? That they won't matter in the grand scheme of things. And let's be honest, how many of them won't pass the 24-hour test? Number three, heaven helps us keep on. Heaven helps us keep on. As Paul puts it, sometimes our light and momentary afflictions, well, sometimes they don't seem so light, and sometimes they don't seem so momentary. And to sort of illustrate this, I want to tell the story that um, back in the 1950s, there was this woman um, from San Diego named Florence Chadwick. And she was the first woman to swim across the English Channel, and it took her 13 hours and 20 minutes. Well, a couple of years later, in 1952, Florence stepped into the frigid waters 
of the Pacific Ocean to attempt a 26-mile swim from the Catalina Island to the California uh, coast. And as she did so, she was flanked by a few boats to help her look for sharks and help her if she got too tired to pull her out of the water if, or if some way if, if she got injured. And after about 15 hours of intense swimming, this sort of very thick fog set in around Florence, and she began to doubt her ability to complete the swim. And so she told her mom, who was in one of the boats, uh, about her, her doubts, and her mom encouraged her on. And so Florence continued on for about another hour of swimming, but finally, physically and emotionally exhausted, she stopped swimming and asked to be pulled out of the water, only to discover that the California coast was only a half mile away. And the next day in this press conference, she gives this uh, speech. She says, I'm not making any excuses, but I really do think if that fog hadn't have set in, and if I could have seen the shore, that I would have made it. I would have made it. And if you're wondering, a couple of years later, she tried it again, and this time she did finish. But once again, as she began to make that swim, a very thick fog came in again, and it began to cloud her during her swim. And she completed it this time. And so she has this other new press conference, and they said, well, what changed? What made it different? The same thing happened to you. What made it different? She says, I be, because I kept a mental image of the shore in my mind. And that's what having a fixation on heaven will do. When life gets to those moments where you are overwhelmed, you don't give up. You don't slack off in trying to represent the kingdom of God and bring it down to earth. You don't give up. When the trials and the tribulations come, you look forward and you picture the shore. You picture heaven. However, I, I, I want you to also understand that heaven doesn't necessarily erase the pain in life. But I think the intent is to give us leverage over it if we really get it. And you see, and this is one thing we really need to grasp, especially if we're going to reach out into the world and beyond these doors. You see, Jesus never promised heaven in its fullness, living in a world right now that's cursed. And I think that at that point we bring up when we present Christianity. But it comes off sometimes as shallow and really without value if we don't really understand it we'll say that Jesus is the answer to people. These people living in trials and tribulations, and we just hurl that out there to them with no context, with no how He's the answer, or what can it do for me. And we toss it out there to people living in misery. We toss it out there to people that aren't comfortably in the middle class or the upper class, and we toss it out to them as that Jesus is the answer. And that's great. For those people, they don't have as many trials and tribulations because they have the funds and they have the resources. And those are its own burdens and own trials and tribulations and own things to overcome. But we, we toss it out there to people living in misery. And well, while I do believe that Jesus in the an- is the answer, let me ask you this question. And it's, and it's rhetorical. How is Jesus the answer to the people that are severely handicapped? and that we'll never be able to do the things that you and I do and that we take for granted? How is he the answer to the terminally ill person? 
How is Christ the answer to the perpetually oppressed people in our world? And how is Christ the answer to the permanently poor? How is Christ the answer to them? You see, if we don't have an answer to give, if we just throw it out there with no context, with nothing behind it, that just simply He's the answer, then we don't really have the real answer. And well, let me tell you sort of in part what it is. You see, Jesus is the answer because His victory, the cross, actually means that these trials will pass. And that their triumph will last forever. And that is precisely what Paul has in mind when he says, yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed in us later. And you can see how this next world can really be rest, how the afterlife, how heaven can really be rest when we finally understand that there will be weariness and trials and tribulation in this world. That's how the next world is rest. Which leads us to our final point. Number four, heaven helps us not to sell out. Reflecting on Peter's writings there in the New Testament, he says, friends, this world is not our home, so don't make yourself too comfortable in it or too cozy. Give you know a different word for it. And so the greatest enemy in the church today is not necessarily persecution here in America. Because you can go to places like China and you can see the church there and you can see some of the atrocious things that have happened to our brethren there. But the church in China and in places like India are growing in leaps and bounds. And you can go to Western Europe where the Christian faith has been threatened with extinction. And there are a lot of empty church buildings. And my point being is that the greatest threat to the church here is not necessarily persecution, but accommodation. Where the church looks so much like the world, where it doesn't grasp the implications of heaven, so there's simply nothing to persecute. So that is what heaven does for us. It gives us the moral stamina so that we don't sell out to what everybody else thinks makes life for real. And so we need to see accommodation here in our country for what it is. And so what I'm trying to say to you, say to you here today is don't miss heaven for anything in the world. Don't miss heaven for anything in the world. And let me point out this. In, in Hebrews 11, you have that famous sort of chapter of the Hall of Fame of faith, and, and the Hebrews writer tells us about all these people located in, in, in that chapter. And it talks about these people who lived and who really got it. Each of these people had a faith, and each of these people had a faith, and they died not having in hand what was promised, but still believing. And how did they do it? They saw it off way in the distance and accepted the fact that they were transients in this world and that they were only here for a moment. And people who live this way make it plain that they are looking for their true home. They know that if they were homesick for their, their temporary home, home, they could have went there any time. They could have went back home to their family, to the loved ones, that they could have went there. But that's not what they wanted. They were after a far better country than that. They were simply looking and moving constantly toward heaven. And you can see why. And the why is the fact that they lived their lives for heaven and because God is proud of them. And He has a city waiting for them. And you see, what, 
what, what, it, what we're getting at here is that heaven, in chapter 11 for these people, heaven was an obsession for all of those who wish to please God. You see, it makes God beam with delight when His children live in the future tense. But I guess it would also be true that God is ashamed to be called the God of people that live as if this world is all they really want and to live such cluttered and selfish lives that we barely give thought to what God has prepared for us. And so maybe you want to fix some things in your life, uh, in your future. It's worth it. But if what you want to change but, but if, you, if what you want to change in your future has something to do with your life right now, and, it, and what you're wanting to change is about the temporary, then it's meaningless. It's irrelevant, and that's just bad theology. And so that was the last point there kind of on heaven, and I kind of want to come full circle with it, back to the original story um, that I told at the beginning, where, where Billy Graham was giving that speech uh, back in 2000 in Charlotte, North Carolina. After Billy Graham finished his story uh, about Einstein, he went on to say this. He says, do you see this new suit that I'm wearing? It's brand new. And and my kids say that I've become more sloth-like in my old age, and so I went out and I bought this new suit for this occasion, and on one more occasion, my funeral. And if you ever happen to see me again in this suit, know this. I know who I am. I know where I'm going. How about you? You see, oftentimes when when we hear the gospel and we hear it preached uh, and we have sermons, we always add the gospel invitation at the end of sermons, even sometimes when it doesn't really seem to fit uh, the lesson. We always offer the invitation. But the next time you hear one, um, either tonight uh, this Sunday night or, or, or sometime in the future, the next time you hear the invitation, this is what I want you to think about. That this is the ultimate choice of where you want to go. You must ask yourself, are you resolved with God that you can possess eternal life right now? And so then act like it. And if you don't, if you don't know, if you're not resolved, how long will you process your thoughts before you will just say that you are going to trust Christ and His answer. When you hear the invitation, you can decide your future right then and make a decision that only takes a moment that turns into a loving relationship with God and that lasts for an eternity. You only need to answer His call and you only need to say that you're ready to go home. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.